0: want to welcome you to Plum Creek this morning. I was really enjoying meeting some of our out-of-town guests. And I uh, really could have talked the whole time. But then suddenly I realized, oh, yeah, we've got Bible study. So anyway, I want to welcome you this morning. And we have two more weeks of this series that we've been uh, in now for about two years. And then, as you know, coming up uh, three weeks from today, our Sunday morning schedule at Plum Creek will change. And we'll have two worship services, one church, two services, uh, and, uh, and no Bible study just because we can't fit it all in. There's not enough hours in the morning. but uh, So we'll have an 8.30 service and a 10 o'clock service. I'll preach the same message at both, uh, and then our Bible study will kind of go away at least for now until the Lord opens up other opportunities, and uh, we're going to have an extended fellowship time uh, on Sundays. But that's all, that all starts February 26th. So we have three more weeks of Bible study. I'll be here for the next two. And I wanted, as promised, because we talked about this uh, in anticipation for the last several weeks, I want to close out this series with just some general Q&A time. So we we did some review the last couple of weeks. We talked about uh, God's covenant promise. We talked about the covenant behind the promise uh, of the kingdom and traced that from all the way back in Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. Last week we looked at Daniel's key prophecy, Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks prophecy. If you haven't watched that video, please go in and watch it. It's uh, it's just, uh, I think, foundational to understanding God's plan of the ages. And so this morning we just want to do some uh, review with a question and answer time. And uh, so I've got some slides available that if they are helpful in understanding, uh, maybe you're helping explain the question. Uh, but to set the stage and kind of get your juices flowing, uh, I want to uh, talk about this notion of, the rapture. Remember, uh, the rapture is the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward. We are eagerly awaiting the Lord to return. In fact, as I mentioned, Tuesday night at our uh, inaugural prophecy night, our midweek service moved to Tuesday nights this past week, and we'll be meeting every Tuesday now uh, with a prophecy focus. uh, We see this concept of eagerly waiting for the Savior. I don't know about you, but this, these verses have never been more meaningful to me than they are in these recent times. Because it just seems like we need the Lord to come back and make all things new and bring judgment upon evil and upon the Luciferians that are trying to take over this world. So this is one of those passages, Philippians 3.20, where we are reminded our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait Eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, those two words in English are actually one word in Greek. It's apek It means to expect anxiously, to look forward to something, eagerly with hope, to be in a continual state of expectancy. And apek is only used seven times in the New Testament, and every single one of them relates to the rapture. It's referring to the rapture. Uh, and by the way, all seven of them, if, you, if we assume for the sake of argument that Paul wrote Hebrews, which I believe he did, but we can't be dogmatic about that. But if, if he did, then that means all seven of these occurrences are by Paul. So every time he mentions this word, it's in the context of the rapture. So we see, for example, in Romans 8, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In the opening pages of his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, uh, eagerly waiting for the revelation. What's the word revelation mean? reveal, good, Uh, unveiling, right, Uh, appearance. Um, It's the same word that is the name of the last book of the Bible. Apocalypsis, is the Greek word to unveil, to reveal. So it's talking here about the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds when we meet him there. By the way, it's really interesting to me that in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, these are the kind of things that you don't notice if you don't have an interest in Bible prophecy, which most people don't. If you're just reading the Bible and kind of ignoring the concept of the end of the story, like we talked about Tuesday night, then you might not notice this. But in 1 Corinthians, he begins and ends the letter. And it's a big letter, 16 chapters, with a reference to the rapture. So here we are in the opening uh, verses and his sort of opening remarks. He says, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then all the way in chapter 16, verse 22, He ends with the phrase, O Lord, come, Maranatha. Again, so the book ends this this letter. The book of Hebrews, again, anonymous officially, but I think there's a lot of evidence that it was written by the Apostle Paul. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. Uh, So we are instructed in God's Word to wait for his Son from heaven, uh, whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Remember, that's the purpose of the rapture. Is to rescue us, not before any suffering might ensue. I mean, we're already suffering. We're going to talk about that in our study of Acts in the second hour. Um, but we are promised twice in First Thessalonians that we are going to be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. That seven-year period called uh, called the rap- called the uh, tribulation. So, uh, with that uh, kind of just setting the stage of of we're eagerly awaiting the Lord's return. I'll open the floor to questions, comments. It doesn't have to necessarily be about the end times, but I imagine it probably will be. Yeah. So the church is considered the bride of Christ. That's right. What is Israel? So Israel is God's, the question is the church is the bride of Christ and what is Israel? Israel is God's chosen nation, the apple of God's eye. They are the ones that bring through whom the Messiah comes, the one who saves the world from their sins, they're going to be center stage in the kingdom with the millennial temple, for example, in Ezekiel 40 to 48 is, is right there in the broadened and expanded Temple Mount. But uh, the church it has a unique uh, role to play and Israel has a unique role to play. So the church never becomes Israel. Ne- Israel never becomes the church. The two are unique uh, groups in God's plan of the ages. Uh, but what's interesting is that analogy of the bride is also used of Israel in other parts of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. So, But when it comes to the New Testament, in the epistles, it takes on a technical meaning of the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile in one body, the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, Paul makes that extended metaphor about that. So uh, Israel is God's chosen nation. They are. Uh, we have talked, I think, about the purposes, I may not have it. Let's see if I have it in here. Yeah, the purposes of Israel in God's uh, plan. So if we put these up on the screen, uh, God used Israel to witness originally when he called them out of Egypt to the unity of God amidst a time of universal paganry and polytheism and idolatry. Uh, he used Israel to be an example throughout human history to, to the benefits of serving God. Uh, I mean, what other nation can claim to have been obliterated from the map for 1,800 years or 1,900 years almost and then suddenly reemerge with great, you know, fanfare and now become, with the help of the United States, one of the mightiest nations on the earth? Um, to, uh, they, God used Israel to receive and record Scripture. Remember, the Old Testament comes through the hands of Jews and most of the New Testament. Uh, to produce the Savior, I mentioned that and to be center stage in the coming kingdom. So, does that help? Well, what is it in the kingdom that they are? What do you mean, what are they? They're just God's people worshiping and glorifying God in the kingdom like we all will be. Okay, so that's because it seems like the bride of Christ would be more closer to to God than Israel would be because they're the bride. Yeah, so the comment is it seems like the bride might be closer to God. No. (laughs) Uh, you know, it's a functional difference in the same way that husband and wife, one's not better than the other, but they, you know, are, have a connection. We, we are more intimately connected to Christ today as the church because the veil has been rent in two. We have a new and living way that's opened up for us. We can boldly approach the throne, as the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 4. Um, but uh, and we have roles to play. I mean, it's Israel's kingdom. It's the fulfillment of their promise. But all along, that was intended to be a global kingdom. You know, God is not a separatistic God. He wants the whole world to know him, and he loves the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But, but so it's not just about Israel. It's about God using Israel to testify to him and bring him glory. Um, Israel failed at that. But that doesn't mean they won't succeed in the future. They will. The promises will be true. So, you know, we get glimpses of what it will be like in the kingdom when we see Jesus talking about the banqueting table and how uh, the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will sit down with Gentiles even at the banqueting table. That's the picture that God's word paints. if, If Israel had, of course, you know, we know this is all God's plan, so we're not trying to second guess, but let's just say hypothetically from man's perspective is if Israel had crossed the Jordan and obeyed the blessing and cursing paradigm that God had set out before them, before they crossed, uh, they would have been an incredible testimony to all those pagan nations. The other nations would have come flocking. We want what you have. Tell us more about your God. This is amazing to see his blessings and the fruitfulness of your nation. Uh, But instead, Israel you know, ended up intermingling, intermarrying, capitulating to these false gods, setting up idols, worshipping the, uh, you know, the false gods. And so over time, we know Israel's history, right? Prophets, priests, kings, judges, and finally they crucified the Messiah when he came, crowned him with thorns. And God said, enough's enough. I'm going to set you aside, not permanently, Romans 9 through 11, but temporarily. And he brings in the church, a mystery, previously undisclosed. It was certainly known to God's mind, His plan, but it's a mystery. And then we talked about that last week with Daniel 9. Uh, and we are center stage today. And by the way, we have the same calling and obligations that Israel had. You know, we are supposed to be lights, as Paul said, in this uh, perverse generation. We are supposed to be, um, you know, walking in the light, being, you know, letting our light so shine so that people will see our, you know, glorify God in heaven. So, um, but someday God's going to call the church home when His Purposes through, and then Israel's going to once again take center stage, and all of these things that they are called to do, they will do, when to, when Christ takes the throne. Let's go to Mike. Is it is it uh, too simplistic to uh, use the analogy, the family analogy, uh, in regards to Israel and the Church, in in regards to. Uh, Forming the analogy where Israel is blood-related, as as opposed to the church you're marrying in, you're joining the family <laughs> Yeah. As a, as a from an outside to joining the family. Which well, so Mike saying you know one possible analogy might be to think of Israel as blood-related, but the church is sort of being adopted in. Uh, I mean, all analogies you know, kind of break down, but I want to, I'm going to call up the uh, seeds of Abraham here, which I think we also looked at uh, last week. Uh, here we go. So remember, in Scripture, there are four seeds of Abraham, and the natural seed is the blood relation. In other words, if you are a Jew, genetically a physical descendant of Abraham, then you are an ethnic Jew, the natural seed. And Paul talks about that in Romans 9. But then, as Paul says, not all are Israel who are of Israel. In other words, you can be a Jew but not be a believer. Just because you're an ethnic Jew doesn't mean you get a free pass to heaven. Every human being is born dead in his trespasses and sins and like Abraham has to believe, have faith in order to be reborn, to be justified before a holy God. So if you're an ethnic Jew and you also believe the gospel, then you're what we call a natural spiritual seed. And Paul talks about that in Galatians. But then, and this is where we come in, Mike, There is spiritual seed of Abraham. So we have just as much a right, if we believe, if you're a believer, uh, you're a non-Jew, but you believe the gospel, we have just as much a right to the inheritance of the promise as they are. We have been grafted in, not to Israel, by the way. Romans 11 is not talking about grafting Gentiles into Israel. This is where replacement theologians completely miss the point. Uh, He's talking about, in fact, let me call that up. But we've been grafted into the place of blessing. I'm going to put this on the screen here. So if you look at Romans 11, it's around verse 20. Well, it's before that. Let's see. Um, let's Let's pick it up in verse 11. He's talking about Israel, and he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should utterly fall is the idea there. In other words, because Israel crucified the Messiah, as he talks about at the end of chapter 9 and uh, 10, or throughout chapter 10, uh, does that mean God's through with them? Certainly not, Paul says. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's another reason for the church, by the way, is to provoke Israel to jealousy. Israel is looking at what we have today as special blessings in the church age that were previously unknown and that are a microcosm of what life's going to be like in the fullest in the kingdom, you know. Uh, And they're saying next time Christ comes, they're going to say, oh, we want that, you know. Um, Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? In other words, you know, as good as it is now, and the way God is using this as part of his plan. Just imagine when Israel receives the Messiah, what a blessing that will be globally throughout the world. And then he goes on, For I speak to you, Gentiles, that as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if they're being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, it's all leading up to one day Israel crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and receiving the Messiah when he comes back. Uh, now, reading on it, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So what is the olive tree? It's the place of God's blessing. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's the, rootness, the rootness and the fatness of it. He says, don't boast against the branches. Uh, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. This is all God. We have no right to claim, hey, look at us. We're way better than Israel. See, that's what replacement theologians do. They think, ah, Israel rejected the Messiah, so God said, Fooey on you, I'm going to reject you, and now I'm going to elevate the church to a place of preeminence. You will say, then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, Consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. You know, Think of the analogy of the children of Israel in the wilderness, including no less than Moses himself. Now, how many of you believe Moses is in heaven today? Well, you should all raise your hand. Absolutely, right? Uh, it would be bizarre indeed to have an unbeliever writing scripture, and he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Uh, of course he's in heaven as are the millions of other Jews that didn't inherit the promise. See, the promised land is not a metaphor for heaven, as the writer of Hebrews makes clear. It's a metaphor for God's blessings to those who continue steadfastly to trust the Lord. And we have the great hall of faith chapter in Hebrews 11 that reiterates again and again all of these men and women of the faith throughout human history that because of their steadfastness of, of their faith, they received incredible blessings. And so this is the same idea here. Be, you know, don't be haughty. Because, you know, if you think it's all about you, you're going to miss out on the blessing too. But notice this, verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, watch this, be grafted into their own olive tree? So that last phrase there is the key. Israel cannot be the olive tree and own the olive tree at the same time, right? And and replacement theologians think that Israel is the olive tree and that God somehow cut them down, chopped them down, and then put us in their place. No, no. It's their olive tree in the sense that it's their promise. Going back to, I think it was what you talked about, you know, it is It is their promise. It was made with Abraham. Salvation is of the Jews, but it's a promise that it will ultimately bless everyone on earth. Remember, all nations on earth will be blessed through Abraham. So it's Israel is the rightful owners of the olive tree, but they're not the olive tree. Otherwise, it would make no sense for Paul to say they can be grafted in again to their own olive tree. You follow me? Right? You can't be the tree and be grafted into yourself. Right? That doesn't make sense. So it's their tree. Right now, we have been grafted into the place of blessing, the root and fatness. And God is using the church today, sadly, less and less, in these great days of apostasy. And we're seeing a great end times departure, as Paul said we would, a last day's departure. But uh, still, someday, God will graft them back into their own olive tree, once again, and all the world will be blessed through them. And this, then he comes and actually quotes the Old Testament second coming passages here. He says... For I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, you know, the church is a mystery, this present age of us being grafted into the place of blessing is a mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Right now, blindness in part has happened to Israel. Why does he say blindness in part today? Because some of the Jews believe, some of the Jews believe. exactly. You know, and Paul, of course, makes the case that he's one of them, right, in chapter 9. Uh, so blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then, that word so, it can mean then in, in uh, Greek, all Israel will be delivered. Uh, as it is written, the Deliverer, that's Christ, the Messiah, will come out of Zion. And this is my covenant with them. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's helpful to actually look at the text because replacement theologians just summarily make statements and say, oh yeah, well, you know, uh, look at Romans 11 and the olive tree. I've proven my point. The church has replaced Israel. And most people sadly just gobble it up. Well, they said it. It must be true, (laughs) right? And they don't take the time to actually look at the text. But they're completely mishandling the flow of thought and the argument that Paul is making there in Romans 11. Somebody else. Yeah. So in Matthew 24, Jesus... Beginning in verse 15 talks about the great tribulation and particularly the second half of the great tribulation. Mm -hmm. And in verse 22, he says, And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Beginning, uh, oh, but for the sake of the elect, those days were cut short. Is he talking, what's he talking about there? Is he talking about Israel? Is he talking about believers? He's talking about Israel. Uh, There and so he's talking about that seven-year tribulation at the midpoint of it which he mentions in verse 15 The Antichrist will set himself up as God in the holy of holies and demand that everybody worship him And Jesus says, he's speaking to the future nation of of Israel that will be alive when this happens. In the same way that Old Testament prophets were speaking to the first century nation of Israel that were alive when the Messiah came the first time, right? Very common for prophecies to speak to a current generation about something that a future generation will actually fulfill or realize. But anyway, he says, when you see this head for the hills, it's getting close. The tribulation is going to be intensified. And then verse 22 is just saying, you know, if, if I didn't come back and intervene, and, and there, if there wasn't a definite ending point to this seven-year reign of terror, nobody would survive. And that. But the elect is referring to Israel. Yep, the elect is Israel, absolutely. Always? No, no, not always. It depends on the context. Uh, the literal Greek word is chosen ones, but we see sometimes it, it, Paul talks about all are chosen before the foundation of the world. And that gets into the election. We talked about that in my Calvinism series, but uh, yeah, it depends on the context. But the, the you know as you've heard me say already, even today, Israel is God's chosen nation. That's what elect means. Yeah. Yes, Ken. Um, can you speak about the kingdom of God? You know, you hear about the kingdom of So the question is about the kingdom, uh, and you know, uh, you, you, when we see the word kingdom mentioned in the New Testament, what does it refer to? Is that a good summary, basically, what you're saying? Yeah. So the term kingdom always, almost always, there's a couple of exceptions, but almost always refers to the future earthly kingdom. And we, two, I think three weeks ago or three times ago, we we traced that promise of the kingdom all the way through. And then we looked at the covenant behind the promise in Abraham in Genesis 12. But the the kingdom is referring to the the earthly kingdom. When Jesus came on the scene and John the Baptist just before him and said, the kingdom is at hand, he meant the king has come. (laughs) I'm here. Uh, So it never refers to a spiritualized, nebulous, sort of metaphorical concept the way replacement theologians say it does. There is a couple of places where the term kingdom is broader. Uh, for example, when we see Paul saying that we, by faith we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So there is a sense in which God is the ruler of all creation, but that's a, that's a non-typical use of the term. The 99% of the time you see the word kingdom, it's referring to the physical, brick and mortar, geographic boundaries, throne, temple, reign of, of Christ. So he never says the kingdom is here you know, has been inaugurated. He says, in fact, in in Matthew, let's see if I can find it, uh, Matthew 22. Well, why am I not? There we go. Uh, He says, I will take the kingdom from you and give it to a nation worthy of your, worthy of it. Um, Might be in 21. Yeah, there it is, 21:43. This is toward the end, the final week of his life. He's ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He's, you know, cursing cursing the fig tree, overturning tables of the money changers, and he says all of these has all of these little interchanges with the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, um, you know, you know, the stone which the builders rejected, quoting Isaiah there, Isaiah 48 uh, or 28 rather has become the chief cornerstone. And then he goes on. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And what what does he mean? He's saying that first century Jewish nation is going to be set aside, as Paul later explains in Romans 9 through 11. But someday Israel is going to receive the kingdom when Christ comes back. So he certainly, from an earthly perspective, came and again and again offered the kingdom, uh, but they would not have him. Uh, And so when you get to uh, Matthew 23, that's why Jesus, after really issuing those series of woes to the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and so forth, uh, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, you know, uh, and so forth. Then he goes on to say at the end, Uh, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you, how often I wanted to gather your children as a hen uh, gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He does not say, you shall see me no more, because I've rejected you and I'm giving my kingdom to the church. (laughs) He specifically says there is a time when you will see me in fact the disciples then are so uh, you know stunned by his remarks about uh, the house being left to them desolate because you have to remember this is Herod's temple Jesus you know Jesus is right there at the temple we looked at some pictures of the temple last week some diagrams of it and you know they think that Jesus is going to walk in and and assume control he's going to take the throne in fulfillment of all prophecy And now he's saying, nope, your house is desolate. And then the disciples immediately on the hills of that. Now, uh, Matthew doesn't record it, but in Luke's account, uh, in Luke uh, 21 and Mark 13, the other passages on the Olivet Discourse, Luke tells us that some of the disciples pointed to the temple and commented about how beautiful it was and how wonderful uh, it was. Matthew just sort of summarizes it by saying His disciples showed Him the temple. And Jesus then makes it very plain and He says, Don't you see all these things? I'm telling you, pay attention. Uh, We're not going... Not one stone of this temple will be left upon another. It's going to be destroyed. And then, and I know you know this because we've talked about it, then the disciples, now He's really got their attention, and they go, Wait a minute. What in the world's going on? Tell us when are these things going to happen and what's going to be the sign of your coming? When will the kingdom come? And then the entire Olivet Discourse, which Paul uh, referenced us to, uh, is about the coming kingdom. It's not about the rapture. The rapture hadn't been unveiled yet. It's about the coming kingdom. And Jesus describes the seven-year tribulation and all that's going to happen during that time. And then notice at the end, he says uh, in uh, verse uh, 29 here, immediately after the tribulation of those days. When does the second coming happen? After the tribulation of those days, then I'll come back. The Son of Man will come and he will gather together his elect again, Israel, as we saw earlier in the Olivet Discourse, from the four winds of heaven, from one end of heaven to the other. So, um, so kingdom always means kingdom. Um, And, you know, it it never has this sense of being spiritualized. And metaphorical in our hearts, like the replacement theologians suggest today, uh, Christ—the throne that Christ is on today—is not the promised throne of David. It's the throne at the right hand of the throne of God, the throne in waiting. Someday He's going to come back, and when He does, He's going to take the promised throne, the physical throne in the in the kingdom someday. Yeah. the Lord when they go into the kingdom are they have extended life or is it just their? No no that's a great question. so she's talking about at the end of the tribulation uh, let me find that passage that would be helpful here the parable of the sheep and the goats when Christ comes back here it is when the Son of man comes in all of his glory, <laughs> It's amazing how many passages you just have to ignore or rip out of the Bible if you don't think Christ is literally going to come back to establish His kingdom. Here He's telling you, the whole chapters 24 and 25 and Mark 13 and Luke 21 are all about the coming kingdom. But He says, When the Son of Man comes in all of His glory and all of the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And notice He's going to say to the sheep, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. See, this is why, going back to Paul's question, you can't have a fundamental substantive difference in the meaning of the term kingdom all of a sudden come out of nowhere in the New Testament. Because this kingdom that God has been planning, as I showed Tuesday night in my Prophecy Night message, is is part of God's plan of the ages. And and it's going to come. It's going to happen. So anyway, back to your question. At the end of the tribulation, uh, all of those people who are believers will be uh, and, and haven't died. You know, they haven't been martyred or have their heads chopped off or whatever. They will inherit the kingdom. They will physically be the ones that populate the kingdom. If you picture the kingdom being a door or a threshold, he's going to say, come ye blessed of the kingdom. And they step through it. Now, there are other people in the kingdom, for example, the church, but we're going to come flying in, right? We're going to come floating in because we're coming back with Christ, having been raptured at least seven years before. Also, the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're resurrected at this same time, their physical bodies are. But they've been in heaven for thousands of years, so they're going to be flying in or floating in, however you want to talk about it. But the people that are physically in their bodies that you described will be the ones who step into the kingdom and then, yes, it's my belief that because that's when the new covenant is inaugurated, at that moment when the kingdom is inaugurated, that they will not experience death. Believers don't die. In all, well, Of course, we don't die because we're already in our glorified bodies, right? Um, you only die once. And because we've been born twice, we don't have to experience the second death, which unbelievers experience at the great white throne. But those in their physical bodies I'm talking about, which is what you asked about, they won't die. So, yes, they will experience longevity of life. That's why Isaiah 65 says that, you know, uh, if someone were to die at the age of 100, and he's talking there about unbelievers, I believe, they would be considered an infant because the Bible is coming full circle as the curse of sin is still there at that point and is there until God destroys the old earth, but it's largely kept in check. And so, as we saw in the early days of creation, people lived to be seven, eight, nine hundred years old. And the same thing will be true during the kingdom. Uh, as far as Israel, you know, that had fled to Petra, remember they are in a kind of a different class because God, as we just read, Jesus is going to supernaturally pick them up and regather them when he comes back. Uh, he says. In verse 31, I will re, I will send my angels with a great sound of a trumpet and will gather together my elect. So they're going to be physically deposited in their physical bodies, but still they're not like they're not the ones appearing at the judgment of the sheep and the goats, if that makes sense. Somebody else? Yeah. I am wondering about the trumpets in Thessalonians. It talks about at the rapture, it will be the last trumpet. Mm-hmm. But now I'm seeing here that there'll be another trumpet at the second coming. Yeah, so the there are a lot of trumpets in scripture and there are a lot of trumpets at different points. Last doesn't mean last one ever, right? It just mean any more than the last days means the last days ever. Let me call up uh, uh, let's see here, go back to my chart. So if you look at uh, sort of an end times chart here, uh, actually let me put up the uh, panoramic view if I've got that. I hope I do. Yeah. So if you look at God's plan of the ages, uh, the, the church age is called the last days. Does that mean there's nothing that happens after that? No, it's the last in context before the kingdom comes. And the, there's eight trumpet judgments in the tribulation. That doesn't. Those aren't the only trumpets because there's another trumpet that comes three years later in conjunction with Christ's second coming. There are trumpets that dealt with the fall of the walls of Jericho. I mean, there are all kinds of trumpets. So last doesn't mean last one ever, but the the trumpet that happens at the rapture is not the same trumpet that happens at the second coming. Good question. Anybody else? These are great questions. I'm trying to see if anybody texted me. Yes. Yeah, so we have a, uh, a Not by Works book of charts, diagrams, and illustrations that has over 100 of our most popular ones that people always ask me about. This one's definitely there. Everything I've shown you so far is in there. So, that's available uh, in print or in digital form. If you get the digital form, it comes with the PowerPoint slides and a PDF. But it's also available in print. So, and that's, if you're live streaming or watching, you can go to notbyworks.org and get that. Uh, Gary, did you about to raise your hand? Sorry, over here. Okay. Someone over here? Oh yeah, hey. I don't think a great question, but I might have missed the one of your messages. But could you do a picture of what the eternal state, new heaven and new earth will look like? A picture of what the eternal state Yeah, just an overview of what that's gonna look like. Yeah, so let's go to the questions about the eternal state. And we did uh, have several sessions on that, and, and if you want in more detail in the book, which you probably have, What Lies Ahead, the biblical overview, there's a whole chapter on the new heavens and the new earth. But let's go back to the Bible and uh, take a look at the key uh, passage there, which is Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, so then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, remember, c is a symbol and an instrument is probably a better word of judgment in Scripture. Think back to the uh, flood, right? So then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So here's another place where we see that marriage metaphor. This is not talking about the church, but God uses that metaphor all the time. In, in the Old Testament, Israel is uh, the name of Jerusalem is changed to Beulah Land? Beulah means married. That's what the Hebrew word Beulah means. So there's a. It just speaks of intimacy and oneness. Um, and let's see. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, "Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain." for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So the best way to picture what life will be like in the eternal state, and remember, the kingdom is uh, not just a thousand years. The kingdom is uh, the entire, uh, from the time Christ comes back until the you know, in perpetuity for all of eternity. So uh, that's why you'll notice on my charts I have it called the Messianic Kingdom and I have it split up between the millennium, which is on the old earth, and the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, But the best way to think about what life will be like then is to think about what life was like in the garden when God created the sinless world. So Adam and Eve had physical bodies, but there was no sin. There was no pain, no sorrow, no crying, But they were functioning. They were tending the garden. They were living life, enjoying perfect intimacy with God. Then sin crept in, cursing all of creation. uh, And God then set in plan this motion. I mean, it was a plan before the foundation of the world. But his plan, as we talked about Tuesday night, then is coming full circle to a pre-fall time like we had in the Garden of Eden. Will the church age people have a different role during that time? Yes. Yeah, I think... The question is, will the church-age believers have a different role? Absolutely. We, you know, God, The peoples of God are unique. Angels will always be angels. Church will always be the church. Israel will always be Israel. God will always be God. The Son will always be the Son. The Spirit will always be the Spirit. So it's not like you know, those uh, ontological distinctions are just earthly. They're inherent in who we are. So I am part of the bride of Christ, and you are, and we all are, you know, believers. And so, yeah, we'll have a different uh, role to play. Remember, the roles don't change. All that changes after the thousand years is the fact that sin is no more. Uh, We're not dealing with the, the devil who's going to be released from prison. He's cast forever into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet have been. He's going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. But the roles don't change. What is our role? Remember, Jesus said we're going to be ruling and reigning with him, uh, governing. Uh, So yeah, none of that, none of our distinctions change. It just is in a, it's in perfect setting, perfection. Uh, Gary. At what point is the temple rebuilt? At what point is the temple rebuilt? Well, if I knew that, (laughs) you and I would go to Vegas and we could Solve all of our space problems just like that here at Plum Creek Chapel. Um, uh, The question is when will the temple be built? We don't know. It could be before. There's no no indication. We know that it has to be built in order for the Antichrist to set up camp there. And it also seems that in the first half of the tribulation the Jews during that time of relative peace as you see uh, here uh, that is peace in terms of governmentally. They're not You know, the the Antichrist signs the seven year treaty with Israel and he keeps it for three and a half years. During that time, they're coming up to the temple, engaging in sacrifices and all of those things. So we know that the temple is in existence, you know, by the time of the Antichrist. Whether that gets built before the rapture or after remains to be seen. Remember, you've got this big unanswered question mark here between the rapture and the start or the signing of the treaty. A lot could happen in there, especially if it's a prolonged time. We don't know how long that time is. I've always suggested, and my best guess is it's a matter of months. And as we talked about uh, uh, Tuesday night at the Battle of Gog and Magog, I think that's when the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war happens. But it, let's say that's years. The temple could be built in that time. But it could also be built, you know, now and already be in place before the rapture. We don't know. Yes? Sure. And also, I've always been confused about who's going to be in the New Jerusalem and who's going to be on the actual earth. And do we all go back and forth? Back yeah, from? so the question is, and this will have to be the last question because I just realized we're already late. Um, the uh, question is about the New Jerusalem, who's going to be going there? And then is everyone in the eternal state going to have a resurrected body? That's an interesting question. And the answer is no, but Why? Why is it that not everybody will have a resurrected body? Because some might not have died. For example, if the rapture were to happen today, we never experience a resurrection. We experience a translation. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is. So Paul says the dead in Christ, believers that have already died, rise first. Their bodies are resurrected, just like you say, to put on their glorified body. But then he says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. So for church-age believers that are alive at the rapture, we never experience death, which means we never have to have a resurrection. So the better way to phrase the question, we might say, will everybody in the eternal state have a glorified body? And yes, absolutely. Another example of someone who won't die would be who? Well, yeah, we've got uh, historic examples, but in the millennium, believers that are born during the millennium and get saved, like everyone has to trust Christ to be saved. They don't die in my view. So they will be translated at some point prior to the eternal state. So yeah, there will be, everybody will be in their glorified bodies, but that doesn't mean they have a resurrected body because not everyone experiences death. Okay. Well, awesome. We'll do this again next week. So be thinking about questions and comments. And of course, you know, you can email me anytime with questions. I love um, talking about this stuff so we'll take a break uh, we'll come back together in here at 10 o'clock for worship the live stream will kick off again sometime between 10 20 and 10 30 when we get up for the message